Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by facial plastic surgeon and fellowship director, Dr. Michael Noara, to talk about retinectomy for the aging face. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Noara. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we usually begin with a discussion of typical patient presentation. While obviously patients seeking retinectomy have wrinkling of some sort, at what stage or stages of aging do you typically see these patients? Well, patients will present uh, pretty much at any uh, stage of uh, later adulthood, starting in their 40s uh, all the way into their 80s. I've seen patients in their 80s requesting a facial rejuvenation. There are some you know, different motivating factors for patients that uh, you do kind of see repeating themselves. Uh, I've seen a number of patients after a significant amount of weight loss, uh, particularly if they've had gastric bypass surgery and the weight loss was rapid, they um, will often present to address some of the excess skin in the neck from that uh, type of uh, weight loss. And then uh, other patients may have a significant change in their life, such as you know, divorce or a new marriage, even celebrating a, an older marriage that has been rekindled in some way. Um, those, those things often come back up or, or somebody who's starting a new career perhaps later in life and they want to be respected by uh, other people in their field uh, and they feel that they, they appear, if they appear younger, they'll appear more fresh and uh, more um, in tune with their colleagues. And so a lot of these things tend to, to come back uh, again and again. Um, and the, um, you know, the factors that, that play into their motivation is, you know, kind of the first thing I ask about when they, when they come in. Uh, but, but they can be in any, any, um, anywhere in that age range. And they can have lots of different levels of aging. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, patients who, you know, really are, are not quite a great candidate for a facelift yet that are um, just showing some early signs of aging, uh, maybe a better candidate for uh, Botox or fillers or things of that sort. Uh, and other times you can actually present beyond where a facelift may be the best idea uh, because of other health problems or something along those lines. So that's an important place to start the consultation. And besides aging, are there any other indications that are maybe less common or more frequently overlooked when we think about facelifts? In my practice, I do use facelifting in the gender-affirming facial surgery, mostly in the older patient who's transgender and particularly for feminization. Uh, when you're resetting the bone position, sometimes it creates additional laxity in the skin, uh, the neck, and particularly the submental area when you're reducing the, the footprint of the jaw. And uh, I will often delay that for about three months after the initial uh, bone work. There's other times where you might use a deep plane approach um, to access facial nerve branches uh, for uh, re-innervation for facial paralysis as well. You know, those, those can get pretty specific into their uh, different approaches, but, uh, but those are probably the two main things that I've seen in my practice. Before we start talking about patient workup and treatment, we'll take a quick second to just review the pertinent anatomic structures. Starting off, could we review the layers we encounter during a retinectomy? Well, we encounter pretty much everything from the skin to the bone, uh, starting with the, the skin, the subcutaneous fat. Beneath that, you'll find the layer of the, the sub, subcutaneous muscular epineurotic system, which includes both fascia and muscles. Um, 
And you can think of this as starting really at the top of the head with the galea and continuing down with the, the frontalis as your most superior facial muscle, um, and then into the uh, temporal parietal area laterally, uh, and then coming over the zygoma, that's going to continue down as the that main uh, fascial layer that we uh, think about most often when we think about our SMAS facelifts. Um, and then medially, uh, the mimetic muscles of smiling and even all the way to the to the nasal muscles, um, the, the SMAS is continuous across the midline and then in, and then the ubicularis around the mouth. Deep to that, you'll you'll have a fascial layer that invaginates the the parotid and masseteric muscle. Uh, the parotid fascia um, has a, an attenuation uh, at its anterior border where you can then also see the deeper planes of, of the facial nerve, the buccal fat pad, uh, which is going to be deep to that parotid fascia. And then superficial to the muscles, uh, more medially in the face, you'll have the, the uh, malar fat pad. Um, and they are two distinct uh, fat pads. And it's important to kind of know where those landmarks are. The buccal fat pad, you know, really moves pretty easily and is not uh, quite so associated with the surrounding structures, but is more kind of encased by the surrounding fascial layers and ligaments. Whereas the uh, malar fat pad really is kind of the extension of the subcutaneous fat within the, the medial uh, superior aspect of the cheek. Uh, so they're, they're very distinct, and it's important to kind of make that distinction. And are there any other specialized anatomic structures we're addressing or want to look out for? So a lot of the facial uh, envelope is sort of suspended in position by a lot of the, the ligaments. You have ligaments that attach uh, directly from the bone to the skin, uh, particularly around the area of the temple at the, the conjoint tendon where the, the frontalis muscle is uh, meeting with the uh, arcuate, and so that's kind of in the superior aspect of the orbit. Uh, and those continue around the lateral aspect of the orbit. You can follow that on your own face and sort of feel where uh, that will then contribute to the orbital ligaments uh, that will extend uh, to the skin. And there's a separate layer of ligaments, and uh, there's some discrepancy in, in the literature about what the name of this or where they originate and, and, and insert. Uh, sometimes referred to as the McGregor's patch. Uh, but this is really uh, more of a, of a fascial connection between the zygomatic arch and the skin of the mid-face. As you see advanced facial aging, you can, you can start to see uh, almost a double vector develop. So you have you know, the, the obvious line that develops around the orbital rim that separates the orbital fat area uh, underneath the orbicularis uh, oculi in the septal region, and then you have kind of a second divot that forms uh, a little bit lower in the mid-face, but not quite as low as the uh, nasolabial fold. And that that is probably where these zygomatic ligaments are uh, attaching uh, toward the skin. And that's also you know, separating kind of the, where the malar fat pad and the, and the sou for the, the suborbicularis oculi fat will rest. Uh, and there, there is some continuity in those areas. And it's not always very clear where the borders of those different ligaments are, uh, but the zygomatic ligament is uh, very tough uh, laterally, and you can see that very easily when you're elevating your, your SMAS flap. Lower in the face, uh, we definitely, you know, have, uh, all of us have a pretty well-defined nasolabial fold, and that's 
really where the skin is is more adherent to the underlying orbicularis uh, oris muscle, uh, with just a very thin layer of, of fat there, and and the um, the zygomaticus muscles are, are going to be deep to the the malar fat. So that's that's where that malar fat is kind of ending, giving you the fold uh, where you're going to be more attached. And there, there's probably some some continuation of the attachments of the zygomaticus muscles uh, coming closer into the skin that that really uh, form that nice tight line in that area. And then further down, you're going to have the mandibular ligament and the masseter uh, ligament that is going to be uh, kind of creating some of the, the lines that we often refer to as the marionette lines. And some of the other uh, dimpling that you can see develop in the uh, lower area of the face um, are from extensions of these uh, other um, ligaments in that area. These are also are the ligaments, the mandibular and masseter ligaments that surround uh, the um, buccal fat pad area. And uh, when they uh, become more relaxed with aging, that will lead to the development of jowling um, or even um, you know, that fullness around, as you can see, if the buccal fat is, is um, uh, kind of pooching through. And so we can address all of these areas with different techniques. And I think we'll cover those a bit later in the talk. But the but those those ligaments are really kind of the the workforce of what's holding our, our facial um, envelope in position uh, throughout our lives. We hear a lot about the risk of facial nerve injury during facelift, and we'll get into different techniques in a bit. But are there any anatomic landmarks we should keep in mind to help identify and avoid the facial nerve? There's a quite a few ways that you can identify the different branches of the nerve. I think it's best if you're working in these areas of the face to find the system that works best for you. Uh, so for uh, the frontal branch, there's an area where you can palpate the lateral orbital rim and the um, lateral canthus. And usually about 18 to 22 millimeters lateral to that is going to be a range where the, where the frontal branch is crossing over the zygomatic arch and into the into where it's going to divide into the branches into the frontalis muscle. That's roughly going to follow a pathway very similar to the temporal hairline. If you can't, if the, the hairline is recessed or is not well identified, um, you can also palpate uh, or identify the course of the frontal branch of the temporal uh, vessel, uh, the, the superficial temporal artery, and that the anterior branch of that will also uh, be posterior to the frontal branch of the facial nerve and be another guide. A lot of the descriptions in the, in the uh, literature talk about certain points to identify it. Well, a point is, is helpful when you're right in that area, but it doesn't give you the idea of the whole course. And so I think that these other, way, these other uh, techniques of understanding of the course of the nerve uh, can also be helpful because you may be just outside of where that point is, but still be in the area where that nerve might be at risk. Uh, for the um, buccal branch, the branch that's going to be going to the zygomaticus major, Zucker's point is often, you know, referred to uh, as a point halfway between the root of the helix and the oral commissure. I don't really use that as so much myself. I, I, if I'm looking for that nerve, I, I know it from where I would find it if I were doing a masseter nerve uh, transfer. And so I, I think about where the masseter nerve would be found. And usually it's just right in that same neighborhood, right, uh, just anterior to that. And so 
that would be about three centimeters anterior to the tragus and then a centimeter or finger width below the zygomatic arch. And if you can palpate where the coronoid notch is, it's going to be right around in that area. And so I, I, I find that to be a bit more helpful for me. Uh, but uh, these other uh, lines and, and points can also be uh, useful. The marginal mandibular nerve is the probably the most uh, encountered branch during rhytidectomy, and uh, its pathway is going to be also the most variable. Um, it's going to swoop a little bit lower uh, toward the angle of the mandible, and in some patients may cross inferiorly, and we see this when we do neck surgery. Um, we can see it overriding the submandibular gland and then returning back over to the edge of the mandible uh, to return uh, toward the medial part of the face and generally crossing around uh, the facial notch. The facial notch is easily identified at the anterior border of the master muscle. And you can palpate that pretty easily along the inferior border. Uh, and you can often feel the facial artery uh, pulsating right in that same area. And so the... the um, mandibular uh, branch, I usually will uh, identify by finding the point where the facial artery crosses the mandible as the most um, reliable position. Some people talk about it being, you know, closely associated with the facial vein, uh, but I feel like that's that's harder to identify from the surface. And usually in, in facelift surgery, you're not really uh, exposing the facial vein so directly. So I, I don't know how helpful that is um, in this setting. Uh, the cervical branch is, is often very difficult to actually identify, um, um, but it's thought to be about a centimeter below a uh, halfway point between the mentum and the mastoid. Basically kind of just in that same area where the facial artery and then just inferior to that. So about a finger breath below the mandible in that same area where the, the marginal would be. So now that we've covered normal anatomy, and you've alluded to this a little bit already, but which of these anatomic components or processes result in a face appearing older? Well, it happens really at every layer. Um, so, you know, going from the skin down, we see loss of collagen in the skin, uh, which can cause uh, the elastosis. Um, we see sun damage, uh, which can lead to the discoloration um, and dyschromia that we we notice as a you know direct sign of aging, and then uh, going deeper, we see loss of, of some of the fat or atrophy of, of particularly the malar fat area and and the uh, SUF or subarbicularis oris fat, and that allows these ligamentous attachments to become more apparent, um, giving you some of the deeper rates. But you also have a lot of resorption of bone. You see that the the orbital volume, not not so much the volume, but the the aperture of the orbit seems to expand over time, and you lose some of the anterior projection of the of the maxilla, um, which makes the the nose start to actually appear more projected, because the cartilage doesn't doesn't erode quite the same as the as the bone will, and so the um, uh, the nose itself will show signs of aging. You'll get tipping and dropping of the of the nasal tip and that kind of pointed uh, appearance of the tip of the nose. Um, and and uh, in addition to the laxity that develops in the skin, um, this will all kind of show you the, the effects of gravity in those areas. Um, and then you see that uh, also in the area of the jowls and then the, the deepening of the creases around um, a malar fat pad uh, with the deepening of the nasal labial fold. Um, but you still, so you see it really from every level from the skin down to the bone. 
in terms of a differential diagnosis, what else is on our differential besides standard aging? And as a secondary question, how do these factor into your surgical evaluation? Well, normal aging is by far the most common reason people are going to present for uh, rejuvenation. Um, there is you know, the process of cutis laxa, um, which is extremely rare in the, in the um, genetic form. Um, but there can be a similar uh, cause from medication use. Um, I've seen it commonly with uh, methotrexate and, and prednisone, uh, particularly in patients with rheumatic disease, uh, where they can have um, excess laxity developing early on, and that can be uh, challenging to address. There are a couple other very rare genetic syndromes, Progera or Werner syndrome. Um, I really haven't seen these in, in practice, but uh, there's something to certainly be aware of. And then the collagen disorders, Erlos-Danlos and things of that sort, uh, may also present uh, challenges. And these aren't going to be typically seen very regularly. Um, and so it hasn't really changed so much of what I would do for a surgical evaluation. Moving on to workup, what are you making sure to evaluate on history of these patients? So I certainly want to talk about um, sun exposure, the, uh, any other potential risks such as smoking, um, and we, we mentioned earlier about weight loss. With regards to weight loss, this is a particularly important one, particularly if there's, you know, if, if the patient is of lower weight um, and has a lot of laxity or loss of volume in the midface, you might be thinking about using autologous fat uh, to help with that volume loss. And if uh, that is something that you're thinking about with somebody who has a lot of change in their weight, that can lead to changes in the, um, in the fat that's transferred. Um, I, I like to tell patients that, you know, the fat that we transfer is going to act more like where it comes from than where it goes to. Um, so if you're, you know, transferring fat from the, from the abdomen or the, the thigh area, and this person, you know, you know has waxing and waning uh, weight loss and gain, they might see those effects in the face after transferring that fat. And so I, I like to include that discussion uh, very carefully in almost every patient that's presenting because I, I do use volume a lot in my rejuvenation practice. I think it can really be a big difference in terms of your outcomes. So that's a, that's a very big one. You know, I certainly want to talk about other medical comorbidities. Uh, we talked about some of the collagen vascular uh, diseases, um, but you also want to talk about thyroid disease, uh, other histories of skin cancers, dermatitis, um, bleeding disorders, of course, everything else that you would ask for any type of surgery, and then any other surgeries that they may have had. Um, this is also particularly important just in terms of understanding their goals and understanding uh, what treatments they may have already had. Um, so if someone's coming in for a revision, this may be a completely different discussion than a uh, first time. Uh, and then also what if they've been happy with any other previous treatments. Um, so if they've had a previous facelift, do they like the results? Do I think the result looks good? Um, and how will that change sort of the recommendations that I make? And then if they're um, continuing with other types of aesthetic treatments perhaps uh, with Botox, uh, fillers, et cetera. This may also change what I might um, offer in terms of uh, how to rejuvenate their face. So the, the, you really have to kind of uh, take a, a full, complete history with every patient. And in terms of physical exam, which features in particular are you paying attention to? Well, I, I try to take a, a systematic approach. I usually start from the top and work down. Um, but I also ask the patient for what, what bothers them most. And then uh, determine if I feel like that is, if I agree that that is the most um, aging area of the face. 
sometimes it's not so much that's that um, you know there's you know a, a, they, everybody needs everything approach. Uh, oftentimes it's an area of the face may be aging at a different rate than another area, and they're really noticing that imbalance or that you know kind of discrepancy between say the the periorbital region uh, versus the neck. And a lot of patients are very specific about this, um, but some aren't. Some come in and just say that they just want to look younger. And what do you think, Doc? What do you what do you think I, I could use? In those cases, particularly, I, I start from the top. I look at their, their forehead. I talk about whether or not they've ever used Botox. I look at the, the eye area. And then also, how does the eye uh, interface with the mid-face? Um, do we uh, see um, a positive or negative vector? In other words, is the is the eye sitting in front of the mid-face uh, malar fat pad, or is it sitting behind it? If it's in, if it's in front, it would be a negative vector. Uh, that may mean that you need to do something more to support the mid-face or consider volume in the mid-face. For the uh, lower face, we're looking at the jowls. We're looking at um, the mandibular line. Or is it, it uh, have a nice, um, strong mandible, or is it um, going to be harder to, to kind of define that area? And I'll actually place my hands on the, the patient's neck uh, and and show them sort of what the result of, of just moving that SMAS layer, moving the skin back and seeing uh, what that might look like. Feeling where the hyoid bone is, um, you know, favorable hyoid is, is going to be high and posterior with a nice long um, mandibular uh, extent above it. And um, in an unfavorable position is going to leave you with a really obtuse uh, cervical angle. A cervical mental angle and so that that can be you know really important in terms of setting the expectations for the outcome of surgery it may also lead to other discussions about you know perhaps you want to consider adding uh, some uh, augmentation to the chin or, or um, to the mid face as we mentioned before um, so kind of again working from the top down uh, for more of the what do we expect with standard aging and i also think it's important to look for symmetry Look uh, for not only facial nerve symmetry but bone symmetry, uh, and then uh, if they're if they've had previous procedures, are there any signs of uh, nerve injury or, or asymmetries that have been introduced uh, from those previous procedures? There are a couple different classification systems we often hear about when assessing a patient for retinectomy. Most commonly, the Dito classification and the Glogau scale. Could you describe these and how practically useful they are in a pre-op evaluation? Sure. Uh, the DITO classification is a series of six uh, levels, um, starting with minimal deformity, um, you know, very young patient, well-defined, cervical mental angle, uh, good tone, um, no, um, you know, no submental fat accumulation. Uh, level two would be uh, more laxity in the skin. Number three uh, is going to have a bit more submental fat accumulation. Number four, class four, um, Dito, is going to have some muscle attenuation, maybe banding. Level five, or class five rather, uh, congenital or acquired retronathia, and class six, low hyoid. I really haven't used this at all. Um, this is something that I just don't find really applicable uh, to you know my practice. Um, I'm not sure if others are using it or not. Uh, the Glogal scale is something that I have referred to. Uh, I don't necessarily break it down in the classes when I when I write up my evaluation, um, but that's uh, four classes, um, and I, I will usually kind of look at it as kind of mild, moderate, advanced, uh, or mild, moderate, severe, and advanced. 
Um, but it, uh, it's listed as class one, you know, little wrinkling. These are patients in their 20s to 30s, maybe some pigment changes. Class two, um, you know, noticing wrinkles with motion mainly, uh, perhaps some more advanced um, actinic uh, keratoses. Uh, this is B patients up to, you know, in their 40s, 50s. Class three, um, these are patients who are going to, these are the ones that are going to start to be presenting more for uh, retidectomy. And these are patients that have wrinkles at rest, gross discolorations, more visible uh, keratoses or telangiectasias. Uh, these are kind of your ideal facelift patients. And then class four is going to be more severe wrinkling, uh, prior skin cancers, perhaps, uh, lots of color changes diffusely throughout the face. Um, these are, these are the uh, patients that, you know, yes, they're going to get some improvement, um, but uh, sometimes there's some things that you're going to have to talk about maybe not being able to get as much improvement with, you know, because of the, the level of advancement. And so I find the Glogau scale to be much more useful uh, for uh, aging face uh, evaluation. But I, I, I don't refer to them quite by the class so much as much as just trying to describe what I see in each individual patient. Um, you may have you know, parts of class two, but then the rest of the face is class four. And is there any other diagnostic workup you usually perform for patients? Uh, not typically beyond uh, photographs. Um, if there's a patient that has uh, other comorbidities, I, I'm trying to rely on our, on our medical colleagues to make sure that they're in good health. Um, if they are smokers, I try to counsel them about you know, quitting smoking. You know, if I'm concerned about it, you could order a carnitine test. Um, if uh, if you you know feel like it's just not safe in that patient, uh, if um, you know if they do have um, a need for blood thinners and things of that sort, then I will I'll often rely on the um, medical colleagues to determine if this is, you know, really the right decision for that patient. Um, if, you know, if I feel like, if, if a medical colleague tells me that they shouldn't go off of their aspirin or shouldn't go off of their blood thinner, then I will counsel them about maybe not proceeding with a, a surgery and, and look at some other options perhaps. But there's no particular test that I would typically order. Okay, so that leads us into the meat of our discussion, namely treatment options. Starting broadly, what are the main goals of surgery that we should be keeping in mind? Well, the goals of the surgery are always to make the patient happy. So you, you want to ask the patient what their goals are, what they're trying to get out of the, of, of the consultation. And uh, sometimes, like I said before, it's, it's very specific. I don't like my turkey neck or I really don't like these bags around my eyes and my neck doesn't bother me. Um, so, so really kind of going back to what the patient's coming in for. You know, that being said, there are, of course, there are patients that you know, don't see it the same way that you might in a more systematic way and, and, and just sort of leave it up to you to kind of make those decisions. But you're really trying to restore about a decade of their aging. And that's usually kind of what I tell the patients um, is a reasonable amount of time. You know, if you can get 8 to 12 years of uh, reversal of that aging process, uh, restore some volume, perhaps restore um, some of the some of the ligamentous uh, integrity. Uh, that's that's a I think a, a reachable goal in almost every patient. I you know I don't really use a lot of mid face lifting techniques. I think there are uh, some um, some uh, surgeons out there that really have excellent technique there. Um, I uh, I tend to look at the mid face as more of a volume issue. Um, I think it's more about, you know, what's good in your hands. I don't think that those other, you know, the lifting techniques are wrong. It's just not something that I've 
found works very well for me. The um, in the the lower face, uh, you know, there you can you can sometimes extend a uh, a facelift to to attain some uh, improvement in the mid face uh, by by doing it, say a deep plane where you're you're getting into the into the more medial aspects of the of the cheek and uh, trying to efface uh, to some degree the nasal labial fold. But the nasal labial fold is going to be very very difficult to to uh, address. From most of the lateral approaches, the the main uh, kind of two categories of, of tightening, if you will, would be either an imbrication or plication. And there's a lot of questions about well, which ones, which ones, which, and how do you how do you remember which ones, which? Um, I always think of a plication as like a pleat. You know, you're you're creating a pleat, and the and the, the sounds are similar, and so that that helped me always remember it. So an imbrication, um, you are you know. You're making an incision in this mass layer. You're elevating tissue and you're re, reattaching it in a new position. Whereas a plication, you're really just kind of folding it over. It's a it's a pleat in the tissue that you're creating uh, to get the effect. And in terms of specific surgical approaches, we'll start with the lower face and neck techniques first because they're most common. What are your typical approaches here, and what would make you choose a particular approach for a given patient? It's very rare that I would do something that did include some degree of a SMAS elevation. You can choose to do a you know more lateral approach on its own, um, and uh, the kind of the classic SMAS lift typically involves a kind of an L-shaped uh, incision uh, upside down, where the you know, lateral a uh, horizontal component below the zygoma uh, will be safe from the frontal branch of the facial nerve, and then a, a vertical component uh, in the preauricular area. Through the um, through this mass, will will get you into the the submass plane, um, uh, and then the skin elevation around there. Um, I will I will almost always uh, elevate the skin uh, all the way across the neck uh, from one side clear to the other side uh, in a subcutaneous plane. Uh, and then and if you're if I'm doing a more of a simple smass approach, um, this is going to be a patient who does not have advanced aging, doesn't really have a lot of banding. Uh, or submental fat that I need to address, um, and I'm I'm just trying to get some um, some better contour around the mandibular line, uh, and maybe some correction of the jowls. Um, and this this is a, it's a really simple, safe, great approach for that. Um, if somebody does have more advanced aging in the mid face, um, or has a lot of uh, a heavier uh, descent in the in the jowl region and in the in the platysma. Then I think that the deep plane approaches are going to give you a much better, much better correction overall. So similar dissection in the neck. Uh, the incision, however, in the SMAS, uh, for me, will will uh, start uh, near the lateral canthus um, and basically follow a line right through the angle of the mandible, and then a variable amount into the neck. Sometimes I will use a, a more simple application in the neck, uh, inferiorly uh, below the angle of the mandible. Um, but I definitely want to get this mass elevated through the angle uh, and all the way uh, over the parotid and into the the deeper plane. So when you're coming into the into the, the front of the protomastic fascia, you you can start doing a more of a blunt dissection. And um, I use a tumescence uh, solution in in almost every case. Uh, some people use more simple local. Um, I like the tumescence because I think it allows that plane to really be visualized without a lot of bleeding and um, it allows for a lot of blunt dissection to be done there. 
and that can really uh, develop the plane uh, clear over the angle of the mandible. Um, you are looking right at your facial nerve branches. Um, so there is a bit more risk there at the same time, as long as you see them and you know you're in the right plane, um, it's it's safe. It's safe to see the nerve. Um, it's not safe to, to work blindly in that area, but it is safe uh, to work in that area. Um, and and uh, so I think if you want to be aggressive for for the um, anything around the nasolabial fold uh, and into the uh, you know the heavier jowl, then you really need to get uh, as anterior as possible uh, by going through that protomasteric fascia and into the uh, area overlying the buccal fat. I haven't done much of of actually entering the buccal fat, although you can do that. You have to go through that plane of where the the facial nerve uh, lies. And so um, you have to be very careful about doing those types of approaches. For the neck, uh, there, you know, there, if there's a lot of banding, I think you're going to be best served with combining what I just talked about from a lateral approach uh, with a, a submental approach uh, to really uh, break up the verticality of, the, of those medial platysmal fibers. For me, I have not been able to really break up good banding from a lateral approach only. Um, and then I will I will um, often remove a lot of the submental fat, define those medial borders of the platysma very, very well, and then approximate those. Um, I like to use a, a 2-0 uh, absorbable, like a vicral suture, to, to bring the, uh, the platysmal borders together. Um, often I, I will actually do two layers of closure there, and then laterally, if there's still a lot of laxity in the neck, uh, laterally I will um, continue the incision along the posterior border of the platysma, uh, continuous with the SMAS elevation, and elevate um, the lateral aspect of the platysma as well. And you can then incise the platysma uh, laterally uh, to get uh, two vectors. And you have one in the uh, above the mandible, uh, above the, the inferior border of the mandible will go more vertical, and then below into the platysma area will go more um, posterior and uh, getting to the mastoid, um, and then securing those really tightly with um, some some uh, simple or, or mattress um, 2-0 sutures. I've used PDS, I've used um, uh, Ethabon, but uh, I, now I mostly use a, a 2-0 Vicryl suture. I think that seems to be strong enough, and I haven't seen much difference there. Or I've had some problems with with permanent sutures in the past, um, and, and that's that's kind of my general approach for most uh, advanced uh, aging in the neck. The you know decision of whether you do submental or not, you know that that really is patient to patient, and um, and sometimes cost can play into that if a if a patient you know wants pretty uh, aggressive approach, but wants to save a bit on time and save a bit on cost, then I think doing a deep plane with the lateral approach can um, can do pretty pretty aggressive treatment even in the in the lower neck and and, and central neck, uh, but you're likely to still see some degree of that banding. If the banding is very severe, I will also uh, make a, a lateral cut from the from the submental approach right around the cervical mental angle to to help define that angle and that helps to kind of create the corset of the lower part of the submental region. Um, and that, so that's my approach for the neck. And sometimes we hear about shorter or combination techniques like mini lift techniques. Uh, could you comment a little bit on that? Sure. Um, I don't use the mini lift um, hardly at all in my practice. Um, but, but I think if you, know, if you have a patient who you know, is on the younger side or wants perhaps something done, 
uh, in the office under local anesthetic. Um, I have done that a couple times um, to, and that's going to be, you know, in, in my practice, it's going to kind of model more of the of the uh, SMAS lifts, so just a less aggressive, really sticking to a shorter incision, um, perhaps not even extending it much posterior at all, um, and. You know, there's there's a number of uh, newer techniques involving uh, suture suspensions, and I don't really have a lot of experience with those. I think, you know, there's, you know, perhaps going to be some time before we know how how effective those are in the long term, but but I think that there there may be a role for that in, in some practices. Um, the, um, you know, in terms of the mid face, um, I will sometimes address the mid face from the temporal approach, and so if I'm doing more of it of a temporal or, or upper uh, face rejuvenation, you can extend your, your periosteal dissection deep into the, uh, along the lateral orbit and, and over the zygoma and into the mid-face. Um, typically to get a, a real release there, you do have to make an intraoral release uh, to allow the, the mid-face to, to elevate up. Um, and, and again, there are some, some people who are really uh, quite savvy with this approach. Um, and can get uh, even some some lifting effect all the way down toward the, the lower part of the face with this, but, but it's not something that I've, I've done too much of in my practice. All right. And for mid-face lifts, what are your main surgical approaches here and reasons for choosing that approach? Well, like I said before, I, I, I personally, I will lean more toward volume for the mid-face. Um, I feel like I have a more predictable um, and reproducible result there. Um, but you can you can approach this uh, again from the uh, temporal approach and uh, keeping a deep plane. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a subperiosteal plane uh, dissection, uh, releasing from the mouth and allowing the, the mid face to elevate from there. Um, but but more often than not, I'm I'm using uh, volume such as uh, autologous fat uh, in the mid face to um, help uh, restore uh, kind of the natural. Uh, uh, curvature of the the malar fat uh, and the junction, and I also use more of the um, fat transposition techniques with lower lip blepharoplasty to address some of the some of the mid face uh, contour uh, deformities uh, that develop with aging. But I don't do a lot of um, you know direct uh, mid face lifts. Um, I think that uh, in in some settings with uh, facial nerve paralysis, for example, there there's a different role for that. Um, but for for rejuvenation alone. Um, uh, I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with the, with the, the direct mid-face lifts. Are there any other targeted interventions you might include in conjunction with a ritidectomy or a mid-face lift? Well, I, I, I do use a lot of, uh, autologous fat, um, in conjunction with the, with the facelift at the same time. Um, I will also use, um, resurfacing techniques, um, particularly the CO2 laser with the fractionated CO2. I think you can really, um, address that. That first layer, which we talked about, was the skin aging, uh, the dyschromias, um, those sort of things you can't address with, with surgical approaches. Um, it's really more of a, a skin treatment. So I, I, I think those are great um, augmentative procedures to add to to, to facelift. And, and I would say probably half of my patients either get one or both of those um, additional procedures. Uh, in the neck, of course, um, I do use liposuction as well as direct submental um, Lipectomy, uh, which is done if I'm going to do a platysmoplasty, I will I will also uh, sometimes directly remove the fat. Um, even if I'm not doing a platysmoplasty, if there is um, fullness in the in the submental neck, uh, adding just submental liposuction can be helpful. Uh, 
I haven't used liposuction in the in the face above the the angle of the mandible uh, or the board of the mandible, but um, I know that people have used that there. Uh, I think it, it's a bit more risky with regards to um, to facial nerve injury and and also a, a prolonged edema afterwards. So I haven't I haven't really pushed the envelope there too much, but certainly in the lower neck uh, liposuction. And with the with regards to to laser resurfacing, I have used that in the neck and even uh, as low as the decolletage. Um, you have to turn your settings down a little bit to re- reduce the uh, risk of pigmentation issues or scarring. Uh, but but it can be uh, quite nice to to help with the um, continuity of your result from you know from where the patient might have exposed skin to to avoid the transition zone. And are there any gender specific considerations or techniques you typically employ? Well, the classic teaching is that you'd use a uh, incision along the the preauricular uh, crease for a male patient um, to avoid uh, moving the hair over the over the tragus. I actually have found that I don't feel the need to do that quite as much. Um, I, there are cases where somebody's uh, hairline might be you know really really close to the tragus, and I don't want to make that error of bringing the beard onto the tragus, but I. I find if I use a more vertical vector in the uh, preauricular area, then um, even with the skin, uh, then you can still uh, use a post-tracheal incision as long as there's you know at least 15 millimeters or so between where your incision would be and uh, where the hairline is. Uh, and then when you're doing that, you just got to make sure you line up the the temporal hairline with the with the beard hairline. And then there might be some skin excision. That's mostly a hair bearing a skin excision there. Uh, but but, but I've, I've, uh, that's the classic teaching is that you'd use a preauricular incision for for men, um, and then for um, pretty much all uh, female uh, cases, I would use the, the post-tracheal incision. In transgender uh, patients, um, I mostly will treat them uh, similar to cis women and uh, use a, a post-tracheal incision. I'm more likely to do a a bit of uh, a more aggressive submental liposuction and uh, platysmoplasty in, in transgender patients. Um, but you also want to be careful that you're not overexposing the um, uh, any laryngeal prominence. So you have to kind of pay attention to the to the larynx um, and, and how prominent the larynx might be if, if you're uh, working with a, a transgender female, because uh, you, you just certainly don't want to make that uh, more exposed or more more prominent. So transitioning to the post-operative period, what complications are you looking out for and how do you typically avoid or treat them? Um, so I, I, post-operatively, I always uh, place a large bulky dressing. You know, the, the most common complication, uh, surgical complication that you're going to see is, um, is a hematoma. And so, um, you know, really uh, trying to uh, create enough pressure to reduce that. Uh, a lot of uh, surgeons are using tissue sealants and things of that sort to help reduce that and then are, not, and are avoiding dressings. Um, I haven't made that transition yet, but um, but I, I understand it works quite well. Um, I often will place a drain. It doesn't always stay in place, um, but I will uh, usually remove it uh, post-operative day one. Um, your, uh, you know, the, the nerve branches are something that you're always you know, concerned about. Or um, We talked about the, you know, the frontal branch and the and the uh, marginal mandibular branches being the, the branches of the facial nerve that are most at risk. Um, so I usually will test those in the, the, the post-operative 
a recovery pretty immediately, just, you know, having the patient move their face around. Sometimes a little bit of asymmetry there is noticeable. There's some asymmetric swelling. The dressing is kind of moving the face in a different way. So I won't get too excited unless it's pretty uh, grossly out of place. Like I said before, usually you're kind of seeing those nerves during the surgery, and so you know they're intact. And if there you know, is a little mild difference postoperatively, um, I'll typically watch those uh, and, you know, knock on wood so far, um, I haven't seen any permanent injuries, but um, but you know, it may take three months for that to even out over time. Um, great auricular injury is um, probably the most common nerve injury, uh, and that's you know reported and and in my experience, uh, some of those can persist for several months, um, and they're you know usually it's one side, not always both sides, and you you know I obviously counsel the patients beforehand about that potential, but but those often return. Um, in time as well, you know, skin skin injuries uh, those are those are obviously um, something you got to watch for as well. Um, I try to avoid cautery on the skin side. I think using the tumescent uh, technique uh, with um, I use a, a full amp of, of epinephrine into a liter of saline uh, along with um, lidocaine and, and uh, ropivacaine. So so there's a fair amount of epinephrine in the in the field, and um, I think that this you know helps reduce the bleeding during surgery. Um, but you sometimes that could work against you because you can, you know, overlook an area that you know, may just be a tiny ooze where then once that epinephrine's gone, um, there's a bit more uh, oozing going on. Um, but, I, but I try to avoid cautery on the on the skin side and um, and that I think helps prevent any cautery injury too to the undersurface of the skin. Sialoceles, um, you know, they, they could happen. They're reported. I, I've, I've only seen um, you know, maybe one or two. I think it's a pretty unusual occurrence. Um, usually that dissection plane is not deep enough to, to injure the product itself. So that would be something that would be um, more unusual from a you know, maybe a thin patient where you got into the plane deeper than you anticipated. Uh, alopecia or hairline distortion, you know, I think, you know, paying really close attention to this when you're, when you're doing surgery can help avoid these almost always. For, for my closure, I use uh, staples in the postauricular uh, hairline, but then I also run a, a 5 chromic um, underneath each staple, uh, just, a, just a running stitch uh, through the whole area to make sure that that, that hairline is, is really well uh, opposed. Uh, to prevent um, any kind of step-offs or high-low that you might see, which will give you a wider scar in that area. And then always lining up the hairline so you don't get a step-off in the hairline, I think is very important. So that's really kind of in your in your incision planning uh, as you're closing uh, to, to determine what skin you're going to remove. You know, dressings are important for preventing hematoma, but they also can cause problems. If your dressing is too tight, you can get um, pressure ulcers, on the skin, and I have seen that a couple times. Uh, more often than not, they they do heal just fine on their own if you just give it time, and and you know it's a lot of hand holding, a lot of uh, comforting of the patient, and and not being afraid to have them come in for multiple visits to make sure that that things are moving in the right direction. Um, but um, but that but that can occur, uh, and um, it's something you got to watch for pretty closely. Um, I will usually switch from the from the big bulky dressing on day one to a smaller dressing on, on uh, day two. Um, and then uh, and I'll have them take that off on their own and, and then use a, a compressive wrap 
around the clock for the first week. And if the compressive wrap isn't uh, fit to the patient, it's, it's a proprietary wrap that I use. Um, there's a number of them on the market. If it's not fitting right, um, you know, or so the patient you know, thinks they need more pressure, they may overapply it. Um, that can cause problems there. Um, and, and then after the first week, I tell them to wear it just at night. Uh, once the stitches and staples are removed, I, I have them wear it at night um, uh, for up to a month. And usually you can get two weeks out of most patients. Some patients, you know, uh, abandon it after after a shorter time than that. Um, and you, you may see a little bit of edema develop from that. Skin flap necrosis and sloughing, you know, it, it mostly I think this is occurring because of either an overseen hematoma uh, or um, overaggressive uh, cautery in the skin. I haven't seen too much of it, to be honest. But um, but it certainly uh, can happen, and uh, and I've seen in those cases where you have had to cauterize on that skin side. So that I think can can contribute a lot to that. Pigmentation issues that's generally uh, more of a complication of the laser than um, than the, than the facelift itself. Um, but certainly you got to uh, counsel about those possibilities. Contour irregularities do occur um, pretty frequently in the short term. Uh, many of these are related to, you know, how the SMAS overlaps, um, and, you know, you try to adjust those things, and I think it helps sometimes to overlap additional layer of sutures to really make sure it's nice and smooth. You don't have areas of deeper uh, tissue pooching through the, your, your SMAS closure, and so, I, you know, I start with those initial 2.0, but then I'll go back and I'll, I'll either run um, another layer of, of 2.0, or sometimes I'll just use some interrupted 4.0. Uh, PDS sutures to make sure that there's not a lot of uh, space for for that deeper layer to to kind of pooch through, uh, which can give you those contour irregularities. But they they can occur still, if particularly a thin skin patient. You're going to see a lot more of that, just like in you know other areas of facial plastic surgery. That that thin skin shows everything, and a lot of those will will resolve on their own. You can follow up with um, steroid treatments, although you got to be real careful because that can also make it worse. And then uh, you know kind of being patient with the patient. If you're making sure that your tension is all in the SMAS layer, uh, you should avoid any any incisional widening or, or pixie ear deformity, those sort of things that occur because the skin is too tight. And so usually, uh, usually I make sure that the, the skin is really just laid back down and then trimmed right where it wants to rest without a whole lot of extra tension. If you're using the skin for your tension, you're going to be more likely to get uh, pixie ear deformity because um, you know it's going to relax some. And then that also can occur if you're if you're too aggressive with the skin excision. Um, I will often allow the earlobe to even create a bit of a wrinkle at the bottom, and and let some of that bottom part of the earlobe uh, heal by secondary tension, just to avoid any excess tension. You can always go back later and take out a bit more around there um, in a small in-office procedure. I, it's, it's much harder to 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 try to recruit more skin into that area. Um, so that's an area you really got to be careful about. I have seen a couple circumstances where I've removed too much fat in the in the submental area, and you get what's sometimes referred to as the cobra neck deformity. This is a difficult problem to deal with. Um, often uh, can be adjusted with a with a revision of the skin, the way the skin redrapes. Um, you may have to do a little bit more liposuction laterally to help uh, cover up the difference. Um, but that but that's a difficult difficult problem to address. Um, and typically, a kind of a revision platysmoplasty uh, where you're doing a little bit more with the skin uh, can be helpful there. 
Um, and then there's always, you know, did we meet our expectations? And that's, I think, the, the hardest one to predict. Um, sometimes, um, you know, the consultation can go really well. You think we're both on the same page. The patient seems really happy. And then, a, you know, six months goes by and, well, they're not happy. And, that, you know, sometimes that just happens. Um, and, you know, somebody missed the mark and the communication didn't didn't fit. And, and I think you just got to expect some of that if you're going to be doing this type of surgery or any cosmetic surgery, you're going to have to expect some degree of dissatisfaction. Um, I think, you know, really talking to patients about the risks uh, beforehand um, can can prevent a lot of that. And that risk includes overcorrection and includes undercorrection. So I I think undercorrection is a big one for me. I'd I'd rather be conservative and and do more later than to try to fix something that's much harder to fix. Um, So I, I do, you know, mention that uh, to my patients beforehand, that I think that's helped to uh, temper some of that, you know, undercorrection uh, concerns later on. I, I get, there's some reports of, uh, you know, some other uh, complications such as first bite syndrome. Um, I think, you know, that that can happen with any time you're in that uh, deep plane area. Um, but the, but those are the main ones: the you know the the nerve injuries, the, the skin issues, hairline issues. Those are those are the things you're going to see most common. Uh, and and really uh, that that preoperative consultation where you have the best opportunity to to um, address those ahead of time, so that anything that does come up is is not a major surprise, and at least you you've talked about it, and that's that's the first part of your plan of how you're going to address it. How long do you expect results to last? Or I guess stated differently, how frequently would a patient need repeat procedures to achieve the same baseline results? Well, that depends a lot on the age of the patient presents in and um, what their expectations are uh, heading in. So if, um, you know, if you have a young patient and, um, and they get a good, nice result, you know, I would expect it to last about 10, 12 years. Um, but, you know, typically a young patient who has a nice result is going to be likely to want that result again. So they may, they may come back in 10 to 15 years. Do patients typically receive multiple rhododectomies over their lifetime, and does that vary based on surgical approach? I think the more aggressive the approach, the the longer lasting the effect, um, with you know some obvious um, variation there from patient to patient. You know, if you're operating in the seventh eighth decade of life, those patients are probably not going to come back. Whether or not the the result is maintained. Um, it's unlikely that somebody's going to undergo this surgery at that age and then and then return for a second one, you know, when they're 80 or 90. The different approaches, I you know, again, I think the more aggressive approaches, the deep plane approach, you know, full platysma, uh, platysmoplasty combined approaches with the laser resurfacing, you're probably going to get longer longevity from that than a you know mini lift, for example. But you know, I think. All of the patients are likely to be, particularly you know nowadays. There's there's a lot of other options. They may not be coming back for a facelift, but they may be coming back for uh, a, a different uh, or or many different rejuvenation procedures or touch-ups or things throughout their their later years. And, and this can include Botox and fillers and everything else. So, so usually the patients kind of stay in your practice and. You may see some percentage of that, maybe, um, you know, I don't know what percentage yet. I guess I'm not old enough yet to know, but um, but probably um, 15, 20% are going to come back for a second or touch up at some point. 
Well, that wraps up everything I had planned to ask you. Thank you so much again for helping us review this topic, Dr. Nora. You're welcome, Ronnie. Take care. To briefly summarize, facelift or ridectomy is most commonly utilized to create a more youthful appearing face. It can be performed for a number of different indications, including diffuse wrinkles or ridids, a suboptimal cervicomental angle, or to counteract fat and muscle atrophy and sagging over time. Understanding the layers of the face, particularly where the facial nerve courses, is imperative to a good dissection and lasting results. As always, a careful history and physical exam with a focus on any risk factors for poor wound healing should be performed. We also reviewed the Glogau scale and DITO classification, which can be helpful to quantify the extent of wrinkling and favorability of the neck contours, respectively. We discussed a number of surgical options for ridectomies, including the subcutaneous lift, SMAS lift, deep plane technique, and various combinations of these, including composite, subperiosteal, multiplane, and triplane techniques, and mini lifts, which are usually aimed at achieving a more youthful neck. We also discussed mid-face lift, which are adjunctive techniques to elevate the malar fat pad and suborbicularis oculi fat, or SUF, and include endoscopic, intraoral, and lateral canthotomy approaches. The most common complication postoperatively is patient dissatisfaction, with the most common technical error being greater auricular nerve injury. Other feared complications include hematoma, facial nerve injury, skin sloughing or necrosis, parotid injury, and scar or contour irregularities. And postoperative depression can be particularly high in this subset of patients. Many patients undergo multiple ridectomies in their lifetime, and counterintuitively, future surgeries may actually benefit from improved flap vascularity and ease of elevation. We'll wrap up as usual with a couple review questions. As usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then I'll say the answer. First off, name the anatomic layers of the face involved in ridectomy. The anatomic layers of the face are from superficial to deep. The skin, subcutaneous fat, superficial musculoaponeurotic system, or SMAS, and the muscles of facial expression, below which is the parotidomasteric fascia. We should note that the facial nerve runs between the parotidomasteric fascia and the buccal fat pad lies deep to the facial nerve. Second, what is the difference between imbrication and plication? Imbrication is when a redundant section of tissue is resected and the remaining tissue is sutured together with some overlap, creating a two-layer thick section of tissue at the junction. Plication is when redundant tissue is folded over itself and all layers are sewn together, which results in a three-layer thick section of tissue. And finally, what are some classically described differences in performing ridectomy in a male versus a female patient? When performing a ridectomy in a woman, a post-tragal incision is usually used to better camouflage the scar. However, in male patients, a preauricular incision is more common to avoid pulling hair-bearing skin in the beard and sideburns toward the ear. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.